Isn't that a strange statement? In everything that we're going to read from here on out, that's not explained. That a prophet had no honor in his own country. He goes on to talk about the Galileans welcoming him and then a miracle occurring. So why on earth did John put that in there? It's a one-liner that was just important to John. He wanted you to know that a prophet is not honored in his own country. But thank God, in God's wisdom, we've received four Gospels so that we can pick up some of these other details. And it is so important in this message. We're going to contrast the two kinds of people tonight. The kind that didn't honor Jesus and the ones that did. And if you will turn with me first, let's look at the very first time the Scripture ever records Jesus preaching in His hometown. If you'll turn with me to Luke 4, we're on the subject of a prophet has no honor in his own country. You want to turn to Luke 4. It's one of those evenings, huh? See, my pulpit just collapsed on us. John 4 and verse... Let's just start in 14. You see your title says, Jesus rejected at Nazareth? This one, Jesus began His ministry. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. He went to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue, as was His custom. And He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. Unrolling it, He found the place where it was written. Jesus is in His hometown. He's speaking to people who knew Him, who grew up with Him. He's handed a scroll to read, and as chance would have it, and we know it's not chance, it's God's working, it happened to be from Isaiah. So he opens to this passage and begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now Jesus stops in the middle of a verse because He's emphasizing something. He's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's good news, isn't it? If you're a prisoner, you'd be happy to hear this. If you're poor, you're happy to hear it. If uh, you need sight, you're happy to hear it. If you feel oppressed, you're happy to hear it. Now, y'all been listening to me teach for a while on the book of John and the Jewish setting in which this takes place. What do you know about the Romans and the Jews? Every Jew felt oppressed. Every Jew was waiting for a Messiah regardless of what they believed about Him, political, kingly, uh, prophet like Jeremiah, like Moses, whatever it was that they thought, they were all waiting for the oppression to be relieved that the Romans had placed on them. They were waiting for this fortress that was right next to the temple to be destroyed and removed that the Romans called Diana, of all things. They named it after their God. So would this resonate with, with them? Should it? Well, yeah. I mean, he's there preaching good news, the gospel. And you see the initial reaction. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They spoke well of him. They're amazed. They're excited about this message. 
here we begin to enter a problem. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut up for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Where is Zarephath, the region of Sidon? Is it in Israel? This is a Gentile region of the world. This is the first hint that Jesus is not just talking about uh, freedom from oppression for the Jews. And they're already concerned. Isn't this guy the carpenter's son? They love the message, but now they're thinking about it. We know him. He grew up here. And he's going to talk about saving Gentile dogs, not us Jews. Jesus rubs it in a little further. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet one of them, not one of them, was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. See, Jesus stands up to preach. And this is good news for them. But it's also good news for the Gentiles, who they thought of as godless heathens. And they were waiting for this Gentile power to be thrown off of them. So this meeting that he's having begins to degenerate. Verse 28. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they, got, when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the cloud, crowd and went on his way. John just points out as he's talking, hey, he's leaving Samaria, he's on his way up to Galilee. Now, no prophet is honored in his hometown. The Galileans received him well. If you look at this map back here, what you see is Jesus would be traveling from the bottom end of the mount towards the sea that is in the upper right-hand corner. To get there, he would typically travel right through Nazareth. And yet, John doesn't tell us anything about Nazareth except prophets not honored in his hometown. He goes right to Cana and Capernaum as the subject of his story and all of the cities that are on the northwest side of that sea. And you wonder why. The first time Jesus announced his ministry, the very first time, his home team tried to kill him. Very first time. Well, maybe they had second thoughts and were repentant. Look at Matthew 13. There's going to be three things that he leaves out. Yeah. Matthew 13. When I say John left it out, John just thought it was enough. Suffice it to say that a prophet's not honored in his hometown. He didn't go through all of the details of what had happened and why. But it's important that we do, and you'll see why in just a minute. In Matthew 13, verse 53, starting in 53. Now, this is another time period. This is the trip that John is not talking about. The first one was before Passover. It was the first year of his ministry. Now another Passover has occurred. And we are in the second year of Jesus' ministry. He has gone from Samaria, is going up towards Galilee. And this is the event that John said, prophet is uh, not honored in his hometown, but he doesn't talk. He doesn't explain it. Listen to what happens in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. 
Continuing to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. In his hometown, he's teaching again, and they're amazed. This is some years later, or at least a year later. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. Why are they offended? Because they knew him? Because they know where he's from? I always point, you know, this and several scriptures in Mark, I always point out to my Roman friends, there is no way around the fact that the scripture here in two places mentions Jesus having brothers and sisters. There's no other way to translate the sisters. If, if you take brother to be cousin, which is what the Roman church does, what do you do with sisters? Okay. That being aside, why are they offended? But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. What is it that they're upset about? Oh boy, Steve caught it. It's not just his hometown now. That's not just what we're insinuating here. His own house. Before we, we get into that much further, if you think that I'm just reading more into that, because house in Israel can mean a lot of things. It could be the house of Judah, of, of which Jesus descended. It could be lots of houses. But there's an inference there, isn't there, of his own house. Turn with me to Mark 6. Let's read the parallel account. Wonder if house means his own house. Mark 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Always starts well. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Sometimes familiarity kills faith. A focus on natural circumstances that you're familiar with eliminates the possibility of the supernatural. When you deal in, well, them I know, their capabilities I know, this is what they can do, you begin to reason out of your thinking the supernatural possibilities. Where there is no faith, Jesus is not honored. And where Jesus is not honored, miracles cannot occur. Why is this important? This is important because the people that knew Him the best, the people that were the closest to Him, were the ones that had the hardest time believing to the point where His mother, brother, and sisters did not believe till after a resurrection, even though they saw miracles. They were there at Cana. They saw the water turned into wine. They were there. They knew. Besides that, if Mary didn't know anything else, she knew that she had not had sex to conceive him. I mean, she knew the man was a very miracle of God. And yet, their familiarity with him kept them 
from believing. Well, what does that translate to for us? You can grow up in and around Christianity. We can get used to this Christian walk to the point where it's all just run-of-the-mill to us. It's This is the way that Stephen Darnell are. This is the way that Brad is, the way that Matthew is. And you begin to look at things in the kingdom less supernaturally than you would if you were standing outside of it. Have you ever wondered why in America, where so much of America is supposed to be Christian, you don't see or hear the miracles that you do in Nigeria or some distant place where there are pagans? The pagans are waiting for the supernatural to show God's power. We're waiting for failure. And we're used to it because it's what we're familiar with. Things have been rough. Think about this. What is it about knowing somebody that makes it hard for you to accept that they can do awesome things? What is it about knowing them that, that causes that? Could be jealousy. You find out they're just like you. And so, really what happens is, you begin thinking, you know, Jesus was a regular little boy. Nothing really special about Him. How could He do... I mean, this is not all that different than Christians that have been hoping for a better life. They've been hoping to see something, but they haven't seen it come about. And they're familiar with that circumstance. And God can't do miracles there because there is no faith present for it to happen. Begun to accept the status quo to doubt even whether God can because you're so familiar with the way that things are that you've lost this awe and reverence of this great King that we serve because it's commonplace. I remember when I was first born again, somebody mentioned the name Jesus. My ears perked up. You know? I, do you remember the first time you sinned after you became a Christian? Do you remember that? It was like somebody drove a nail through your hand. Like you were right there hammering Jesus. I remember it. I said a four-letter word uh, on the job site. Uh, a big object was falling on someone and instead of, oh Lord, help him, came out, oh, you know, what you call those handles in the car, those kind of, <laughs> you know. I wasn't talking about a tree in Israel. <laughs> and I, I was broken about that because I was in a place with the Lord where I really believed He was who He said He was. I lifted Him up as the Lord and it broke me that I might have let Him down. But as you become more familiar with the scenario, you get used to being around them. You remember the first time a husband and wife meet? I mean, first time you get together, oh, you're so nervous you can't, almost can't talk, you know? Guy goes to say something, ask, ask her out on the first date, and you're stammering. You sound like an idiot, you know? For, first time there's that embrace at the door, you know? You're playing it over in your head, you're wondering how it's going to go, you, you're hoping for a really smooth interaction, you end up kissing her ear, you know? I mean, you remember that awkwardness because it was, oh, they're special. Now you roll over, you know, scratch your armpit and kick her out of bed, you know. I mean, obviously that's not the case, but you understand what I'm saying about familiarity being an enemy. We need a newness with the Lord. That's why the Word always talks about being renewed, be being all of the time. And the reality is, let's get down to it, guys. We say we're saved. We're calling something that is not as though it was. You are being saved. Don't you get so familiar with the Lord that you are not scared of Him? There needs to be a healthy fear of the Lord when you begin to contemplate thoughts like, uh, I don't know if the Lord's going to do it for me. I don't know if it's going to work out. You Hush your mouth. Be scared. 
Be scared you might offend this great king that bought you with his blood. I mean, there needs to be some sense of awe and reverence about the Lord. Understand something. Most people that are waiting for miracles, waiting for God to come through, don't believe that He will, and so He doesn't. This hometown, these people are asking for miracles. He's done some. They didn't do any more here. And the real, the real demon in the whole scenario was they knew who He was. They were familiar with it. Prophets don't grow up from little kids, do they? Who, how could Jesus be special? We know who His mother and brothers are. You know? One time, there's this discourse in John later where they're arguing. He can't be the Messiah. The Scripture says nobody will know where He comes from, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. But, I mean, it's this conception. You can't be anybody great. You grew up on my street. We went to the same school. And let somebody prove themselves to be great in the world's eyes. Great football player, president or something. Oh, I went to school with him. He lived on my street. Yeah, you know. But you would have been the same same one sitting right next to him saying, you can't be president, buddy. You grew up in that rush. You know? I know who you are. I know all about you. That's how they treated Jesus. And the church does the same thing. And it's worse when there was not a dramatic conversion. Because when you grow up around it, it's easier to take it for granted. That's why most people that grow up in the church, I'm praying so hard about this for my kids, experience a time period in their life where they really do take Jesus totally for granted and they have a born-again-like experience where they come back to the Lord in a serious way. Most people do that. Jesus, owned, You think Jesus' mother believed the day the angel spoke to her? I did. I, she treasured it up in her heart. And yet she experienced unbelief for all of us adult ministry. Go figure. Guys, you need to stir yourselves and not let familiarity with something cause your faith to die. Because here, here's the reality. If you're familiar to the point where it's not anything special to you anymore, you're not honoring Jesus as who He said He is, and you won't see Him to be that. See, when you, when you have no faith, the Bible says you're not pleasing to God. Okay, we probably covered enough with that. But we want to turn to John four forty-five. Here I want to contrast this other group of people. John skips over. He says after two days he left for the Galilee. Now Jesus himself pointed out that there was that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. What do you know about Jews in Jerusalem and the Passover feast? Was it just the Galileans that were there? Of course. Now we're not calling Nazareth Galileans. It's a little further southwest from the lake. Cana, for some reason, that is not on the lake, is called Galilee. You know, it's only 10 miles apart from Nazareth, but it's 10 miles north and a little bit east, it's closer to the lake. I don't know how they do that, but they associate those two. They don't Nazareth. What we're literally going to find out here is that in Jesus' hometown, which was only 10 miles from where this next miracle is going to happen, They were so familiar with Jesus that there was no awe of Him. They were shocked at the fact that He claimed to be anybody great. They were upset that He was willing to do something for people that they thought were unclean, so they rejected Him. But there's a different kind of person here. These Galileans had seen Jesus. Where had they seen Him? What has He done thus far in the book of John? In John 2.23, He cleared a temple in Jerusalem at Passover. They saw that. said He also did many other miracles while He was there. They saw that. Uh, 
He's in Cana. Now, that's what we're going to find out where he is. He's in Cana. What else had occurred in Cana in John 2? Water into wine. They had not known. They had not grown up with this kid. They had not seen him, but he was from a neighboring town and all they heard about were, look, he's doing miracles. Everybody's going out to hear him. There was enough distance where they could be in awe of his achievements. And so they welcomed him. They were excited about it. Guys, don't get so comfortable, so close in your walk with God that you don't see him for who he is based on his accomplishments. You know, Jews are very uncomfortable with something that we say. You ever call Jesus your personal Savior? That is very, very uncomfortable to them. The idea that God would belong to you in some kind of way. You're pers- like my personal calculator. For you to say, I talked with God. We do. We do. But in there, you remember how the Scripture speaks of Moses? Moses was different than other men because God spoke with him. You, you remember the Scripture says that? So when you walk up to a Jew and you say, hey, I was talking with God last night and he told me that you, they think you're demeaning God, bringing him down to your level. Now we know that in the body of Christ we have ascended with Jesus and are seated at the right hand of the Father. And if that's the sense that we mean it, great. But we don't need to make God commonplace. Do you you understand? We don't need to equate him with men. I've heard people say, well, and I, I just had to get real with God and I had to tell God. And then the thing that they said, I would be mad if they told me. And I'm thinking, you talk to God like that? Are you insane? You know, read what Herod got struck dead for. Read that. And tell me if that hadn't occurred in traffic out here on 59 every day. You know? Read what Ananias and Sapphira got struck dead for. And tell me that's not going on in churches all over the place all the time. God brought those actions and they were written down to institute a relationship with Him. This is serious. You take it seriously. And it's all founded on one principle that we're fixing to get to. What I've been teaching is, I understand familiarity in this concept a little bit vague. I know that. You can kind of see it, but it's not the kind of thing you can define. The problem's always something that's ambiguous and hard to define. The solution, thank God, is very, very clear. And that's where we're going. In John 4.45, we see that these Galileans, because they had heard of his deeds, like Habakkuk said, they had heard of his fame, welcomed him. And in John 4.46, we pick up, once more he visited Cana in Galilee. Once more because he visited there in John 2. Where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now, when you're reading this, I, I realize that these city names are familiar to you, but you may not know right where they are. So when we're talking about Capernaum and we're talking about Cana, Cana is southwest of the lake. It is north of Nazareth, 10 miles north of Nazareth. And it is 20 miles from Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of that lake when you're looking at it, the only lake on the map. So in that top Left corner of the lake is Capernaum, or Capernaum, the village of the prophet Nahum. And if you went southwest from it, 20 miles, you would be in Cana. So we have a royal official who had heard that Jesus was coming to Cana, and he rushed there to meet him. Okay? Where had Jesus been prior to this? Jerusalem. 
He's come up from Jerusalem. We've kind of skipped over his hometown where he didn't really do very many miracles. Now he's in Cana. Somebody comes from Capernaum down to meet him right away. Why would you do that? Why would this guy travel 20 miles to go meet Jesus? He, he needed something. He had faith. And he had heard. He probably was really disappointed that he missed Jesus on the first trip when Jesus was in Cana the first time. His son had probably been sick for some length of time. And he had hoped to get to Jesus, but by the time he realized he needed to, Jesus is down in Jerusalem clearing temples and stuff, spending time with the Samaritans. And now, what's this? I hear he's on the way back. Boy, he's not going to miss this opportunity. You ever had a famous artist come to town? Uh, maybe a worship person. Jason Upton came to town not that long ago. We missed him. I was really disappointed we missed him. I won't miss him next time. I bet that was the attitude of this royal official. Now, when we say royal official, what's that? What kind of royal official lives in Capernaum? Would a Roman live in Capernaum? Not a royal official. What? And if, if it were a Roman, wouldn't we have a different name? One of the Roman names? No, but what is royalty? What is royalty? It's not an administrative position. President's not royalty. What, what is royalty? Monarchy. Kingship. Huh? Royal birth. So if he's a royal official, who do you know that he's an official of? Who's the only king mentioned in Israel? It's the guy that competed with Jesus. King Herod. Herod Antipas. Now, this region of Israel was ruled by Tiberius Caesar. <laughs> you know, uh, Luke mentions Augustus Caesar, which is Octavian in Julius Caesar's play, Shakespeare's play. I say that to say this. Herod kills John the Baptist, right? Herod's a wicked guy. He kills most of his family. We know that. And yet, here is one of his officials who has heard that Jesus is coming from Jerusalem. Now, he may be Jew. Herod was a Jew. But what do you know about Herod being a Jew? Was he well respected among the other Jews? No, because he had sympathized with the oppressor. He, he was a puppet of Rome. Now, here's a royal official, a puppet of Rome, somebody who'd be despised by most Jews because he's on the wrong team. He's on the appeaser team against the oppressor. You remember at the mere thought that Jesus might want to honor people outside of Israel, his people in his hometown wanted to kill him? Now we have got Galileans and a certain royal official coming to him who is a Jew that has sympathized. I mean, this is almost as bad as a Samaritan in their minds. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. Really profound statement here. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, he was met, or his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. This guy who's an unlikely choice, somebody just as lost as you were, just as lost as you were before you came in the kingdom. Somebody just as estranged 
from God heard about Jesus' deeds that prompted in him the faith to go seek out Jesus. You remember that place in your life? Where you had begun to hear about Jesus, it was starting to become real to you, and you set out on a spiritual journey to meet him. That's where this guy is. Now, what's interesting is because of the way that we use these words, because we say he took Jesus at his word and then he went on his way, I might say in English, just talking, yeah, Steve said it was this way, I thought it was that way, but you know, I took him at his word and uh, I'm on my way now. And that that not at all convey anything good. I had to take him at his word. And I just happened to be on my way. Now, I'm not a Greek linguist. But as I began to study this, get this. In King James, he said it like this. "Jesus, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. The man believed the word that Jesus spake unto him and went his way. Basically, same thing. You understand that, right? When he says that the man believed the word or took Jesus at his word, all of the writers that I read said that that Greek statement, and I've got it here, but I won't attempt to read it, because of the tense, because of where it's placed in the sentence and how it's used, says that he trusted Jesus' word and there was instantaneous and active faith. The way that this is... Now, these are, this is not necessarily a Christian commentary on the Greek. This is somebody just talking about these Greek words and what they were trying to convey. An instant belief that would produce an action, is what they say, when he said he took him at his word. Then get this. When he says he went his way, we say, oh, Mandy and I, we got in an argument and we went our way. When this says he took him at his word and he went his way... This means started on his way to show that he believed. That's that's how they interpret this. Incidentally, I told Cassie I'd read her an Amplified Scripture today. Y'all know that the Amplified Bible often takes English words and lists several of them so that you have a more full understanding of the original language. Amplified says it like this, Jesus answered him, Go in peace, your son will live. And the man put his trust in what Jesus had said to him and started on his way home. You see what's happened? This guy comes from a distance hearing about Jesus. He presents him with a problem. Then he accepts Jesus' word on that problem, on the subject, and immediately begins to act as if what Jesus said is true. You want to know the difference between those that are radically saved And those of us that have been in the kingdom for years is when you're radically saved, you're hanging on every word that Jesus says as if it's the first time you've ever heard it. And when you hear it, you put your faith in it and you expect it to be true. Somewhere along the way, the church becomes familiar with Jesus' Word to where it doesn't make that same kind of shocking impact. And we think that it's acceptable not to act as if His every word is true and act upon it. So what on earth could you be talking about? Does the Word say that He will provide for you? How much time did you spend worrying this month about your finances? Yeah. Does the Word tell you that He will never leave you or forsake you? And yet, how much time have you spent wondering if the Lord was with you in a situation? Does the Word teach us that He desires to prosper us? How much time have we dwelt in unbelief concerned that God wasn't going to come through for us? 
See, we are all too often like Jesus' family, the body of Christ, like His natural family, familiar with Him and unimpressed. If you will remember from where you came and see yourself like that certain royal official who really doesn't deserve to take part in this, but here's, I have a second chance. He's coming back my way and run to meet Him. And then when you hear what He said, you rush to do it. You get results. Jesus couldn't do miracles in His hometown because they didn't believe that He would. They thought He's just nobody special. He's commonplace. This guy saw Jesus as a rare commodity. Something that, man, I better go now. I might not get another chance. And then when he heard it, he did it immediately. You're waiting for God to come through for you? Treat Him that way. Treat Him that way. When you say, Lord, I need to be happy. I'm downtrodden. I'm upset. My life's not going well. Well, when His Word says the joy of the Lord is your strength and He's done this so that your joy may be complete, get happy. You can do it. And you know what? When you start on your way, showing that you believe His Word, He will meet you with a miracle. You know, there is nothing in the kingdom that works this way. Lord, You do it for me and then I will. That is not faith. The way that it works in the kingdom is, Lord, I believe You'll do it so I'm stepping off the diving board although I don't see water in the pool. That is God. Think about those of you that are Spirit-filled. Okay? Think about the first time you ever spoke in tongues. It required you to speak believing that He was going to anoint it. Not Him making you speak and then you saying, wow, God, since you did that, I will go ahead and be obedient. And this is a snare for lots of people. But I'm making it up. No, you're beginning to speak in faith. I'm not teaching on tongues tonight, but it's an example. God requires you to act that shows your faith and then He honors it. When you sit back with your arms crossed and, well, God, you better do this for me. Almost in disgust because you don't think He really will. No, He won't. You're right. He won't. And then you can be a member of Nazareth in the hometown. Well, all Israel is running to this guy. You can cross here and say, no, we're not. He's nobody special. We know who he is. We know his brothers. We know his father. We're unimpressed. Now, nobody would ever admit to that, but the reality is it happens. It does happen. Have you never had a brother come to you and share with you a verse and just, man, this is God's love. You know, this. he says he loves you and they're excited and you're like, yeah, you know, yeah, I've known that for years. We need to not lose that zeal. They teach you in marriage counseling. A Gary Smalley, Trent, whoever his name is, that guy looked like a beaver to me, but you know, a redhead. Yeah, who? Yeah, I don't know. In any case, they taught this this uh, thing called homes of honor. Said if you want a good marriage, men, when you see your wife, go, sweetheart, it's good to see you. Always have that sense of. Newness. They taught the wives to do that. They talked about ways to keep a relationship fresh, to keep a relationship new. Friends, we need to practice that. We're the bride of Christ. Quit treating Him like you've been married 50 years to Him and are unimpressed with Him. Stand in awe of His deeds. Concentrate. Think about His fame. It will build your faith and you will begin to believe that His Word is true. Now, all of us say, oh yeah, I believe every word in here. But do you act like it? We'll all hold up His Bible and say, yeah, this is the promises of the Lord. And yet we conveniently forget what His Word says when we want to dwell in pity, despair, depression, fear, all of those evil things. 
I can't tell you the number of times this week I have had a thought come to me that is not, it's not lust, it's not anger, it's none of those things. It is a fear that comes and presents itself. And you know what drives it out? This Word drives it out. I sit there and I think about it and I say, no, the Word of the Lord says, I'm going to take Him at His Word and I'm going to act as if that's true. And you know what? It flutters away looking for a more opportune time. Now, you ladies are experiencing, some of you, pregnancy. Others of you, women just lead a hormonal existence that is beyond my ability to totally comprehend. Hats off to you, ladies. I mean, in the millennial reign, number one, most of you are more servants than any man that I know. That in itself puts you really high in the kingdom. Then when we factor in all of the other natural things that you have to deal with, on a monthly basis even, this has got to put you at the top of the top. But I want you to understand something. If the devil came to Jesus in the 40th day of a fast and then looked for a more opportune time, there are time periods in your life that the devil will see as opportune. That you must stand on the Word of God and act as if it's true. And if you don't, he will eat your lunch. And it will be nobody's fault but your own. And here's, here's the other reality. I've got to get this out there because we're the church. I cannot carry anyone in the kingdom. And you can't do it either. The kingdom is built upon this principle. Each man stands up to carry his own load and others help. But each person has to stand up to I can't be happy for you. I can't be faithful for you. These are things that you have to do for yourself and like the message Sunday said, we encourage each other in it. Everybody that walked in this church tonight, every single one of you, walked in with a smile on your face and it lifted my spirit immediately. You walk in here with your lip dragging the floor and your knuckles hanging behind you, it makes me want to do that. We're supposed to spur one another on to good things. And you know what? This guy got what he was after. Jesus did. Was Jesus absent from his son's life? This kid never saw Jesus. Jesus never entered the house. And yet, Jesus was not too far away to do something about his problem. You may not see any signs of visible progress in your life in a situation. You may not see Jesus at work in it, but I guarantee you He can fix it without even being there in a way that you can see Him. This proves that. Let's read it. Once more he visited Canaan and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. If you have a problem, you need to go to the Lord persistently. You need to go to the Lord to the like, Lord, I believe I've crossed from death to life. This is part of death that's trying to cling to me. I am beseeching you, Lord, help me. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. How many miracles? Think about this. Is there anybody here that cannot legitimately claim that they've seen at least one bona fide miracle in their life? Is there anybody in here that had never seen somebody healed? Never seen somebody's life totally change? You're staring at me. 
I mean, how many does it take? I mean, at what point is it not okay anymore to doubt somebody that's proven themselves? The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. While he was still on his way, he got the result. The reality is, if we could put into practice God's Word on a daily basis, more than likely, more than likely before the day was out, 90% of your problems would be solved. Solved. Most of the problems, most of the problems in the kingdom have nothing to do with anything other than a failure to put God's Word into practice. We will look for a cistern that somebody else dug, we will look for any other remedy other than God's Word because there are times it is hard to put into practice. If you will simply trust God with whatever you are believing Him for, whatever He's spoken to you, while you're still on your way to do it, He will come through for you. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. The guy had heard Jesus was in Cana. He rushed out there to meet him early in the morning. Found him at almost after sun up. Then, before he could even get all the way back home, the next day, some 20 miles later, before he could get all the way back there, his servants met him. Now, let me ask you something. He had not seen his son healed yet. He had just spent time traveling almost 20 miles to wherever he met his servants. Okay? That whole time, he was believing God's Word, but he had not seen it. Did that mean that it was not done? No. It had been done at that very hour. There are times where saying, Lord, I, I'm praying for that new job and I haven't seen it. I'm praying for this and I'm believing You, Lord, but where is it? Having no idea that it has already been completed, you're just on the journey to get around to it. I one time was sitting at Hibernia National Bank, fretful and wanting to quit. We went to a Highland Road Bible study. I spent the evening with people in Bible study and then went to worship. At 2.30 in the morning on a weeknight, a friend of mine prophesied as we we were worshiping God said, the Lord says, wait until I open the door. I wanted to choke him. You know, it's not what I wanted to hear. The Word of God is often something that you... I bet this guy would have been a whole lot more comfortable if Jesus said, come here, I'll hold your hand, we'll walk together. But part of the faith was Jesus stays here and you have to go away from what looks like the solution, believing that the Word He gave you is true. Boy, is that faith. So told me, wait till I open the door and then this long other beautiful thing. I put a date on a piece of paper and wrote this down. Pinned it to my monitor at work almost in defiance of being there. Uh-huh. There's going to be a day I'm going to get out of here. You know, and I'm looking at this, but also reminding myself to wait because the Lord said that. I was in an interview, also at this time believing that I've probably blown it. I'm just bailing out before God said bail out because I don't see anything happening. I said, tell me, how did you get the idea to begin this business? He said, well, it's about a year ago today. And when he said that, I felt as if somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I reached into my bag. He thought I was pulling out another resume. 
What I was pulling out was that sheet of paper to look at the date on it. And it was one year to the day. Had God heard my prayer? Yes. Did I see it? No. It was an entire year before what God had done that moment became apparent to me. Friends, that's, that's the kind of experience that this man had. And if you believe that, if you begin to take Him at His Word, it is easier to get through the valley to the mountaintop even if you can't see where it is because you're certain that His Word is true. But if you want to dwell in discontentment and insecurity, not sure His Word is true, you go try to find something that's more sure. Pick a horse. Pick a chariot. How about a king or, or an army? Lean on your own arm for a while. See how well that works. Here's the reality, guys. None of you were of noble birth. None of you are important people as far as the world's concerned. There's one who sees real worth in you, and that's Jesus. He's your very best shot. He really is your very best shot. Even if you were offered the kingdoms of the world, none of us, I think, will be. He is more sure than that. Sometimes we think wealth will fix our problems. Your lack of money shows that there's a problem. It is not the problem. It shows that there's a problem. Just like sickness is a symptom of a bigger problem that man has. It's not the actual problem. Your lack of joy, your lack of faith, all of those things, those are symptoms. The problem is not trusting the Lord enough. But it can be corrected. It can be corrected in a single moment. I have lived in this little church to see every single life doing well. I'm so happy about that. There was a time period a little while ago where I was scratching my bald hairs out. Beginning to think, you know, is this going to work or not? I'll tell you, I'll be honest, we have hurdles yet to overcome. I know and they will always be there. That's part of the race. But I'm excited based on what I'm already seeing and I don't think there is an obstacle that we cannot overcome. Not one. And if that's true for us in this church... It's true for the body at large if they will take him at his word. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that that was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. If you're praying for something, standing on Jesus' Word, believing that it's true, that He upholds you in court, that He give you a better job, that He fixed the problems that your spouse has, whatever it is, know something. From the moment His Word was issued, it's done. We just don't see it yet. He declares that about your salvation. He declares that about your glorified body. He declares that about His creation. Even when we see Daniel praying, an angel fights with another angel for 21 days. And he says, from the moment you prayed, I heard you and I was en route. I was just delayed a while. You know, we need to begin to understand there's warfare that takes place. We need to not bail out on Jesus when you don't see it right away. You say, well, I wouldn't bail out on Jesus. When you cross your arms and your bottom lip comes out, you just bailed out on Jesus. I mean, that happens. It shouldn't, but it does. I want to read you a couple quotes here, and we're going to close. Anybody know who Andrew Murray is, other than Brad, because I talked to Brad about this for a while? Mandy, you like to read his books, don't you? Would you say that the guy loves the Lord? 
I would too. I might even call him a great biblical scholar. He has a book called Abide in Me. I think I have it on my bookshelf out there. I was reading on a computer. On this subject of taking Jesus at His Word, he had a chapter in his book. It's the fifth chapter and it's titled, As You Came to Him by Faith. That's the title of the chapter. Listen to how Andrew Murray describes this. Oh, that you would learn a lesson from the time of your first coming to the Savior. Remember, dear soul, how then were, how you then were led. Contrary to all that your experience and your feelings and even your sober judgment said to take Jesus at His word. And how you were not disappointed. He did receive you and pardon you. He did love you and save you. You know this to be true. And if He did this for you, when you were an enemy and a stranger, what thank you now that you are of His own family? Will He not much more fulfill His promise? Oh, that you would come and begin simply to listen to His Word and to ask only one question. Does He really mean that I should take Him at His Word? Now, this guy wrote that. He put his finger accurately on what that whole latter part of the fourth chapter is. Are we so close to Jesus that we no longer take Him at His Word anymore? That it was true when we were enemies of God and He brought us into the kingdom, but now He's not doing it for us anymore? Or do we continue to take Him at His Word? This is where Paul said, the righteous are justified or live by faith to faith, from first to last. It never stops. The same faith that saves you sustains you. The same faith that you had to get saved is what is supposed to carry you through your problem. If you can't have faith to get through the problem, you need to question whether you have the faith to be saved. This is where Paul said in Romans 8 9, you need to examine yourself. You need to know that His Spirit's in you. You need to know that you passed the test. And assuming that you do, then you're a child of God if you're led by Spirit. One more quote. That was Andrew Murray. I have one that's more obscure. I told you I get to study today. This guy's Jay Vaughn. He's another theologian. He's writing on how Jesus would be glorified in his church. In what way is it that Jesus is glorified in his church? He writes, To believe is to take God at his word. And those who believe look very strange here. Men cannot understand them. They seem to be giving up substances for shadows. But then the whole world will see with astonishment the triumphs of faith and the faithfulness of Jesus to His own Word at His coming. Guys, we have to be those kind of people that contrary to our every natural desire, contrary to our every instinct, even if it looks to the world like we are chasing shadows and giving up substance, that take Jesus at His Word. If He told you to be somewhere, be there, regardless of the circumstances. And it's okay to acknowledge them. I'm not, I'm not in some hyper-faith movement. I, one of the things that I cling to in the book of Romans is Abraham acknowledged the fact that his body was as good as dead. He acknowledged it. He just freely admitted it. But he reasoned that God was able to perform what he had promised. I'm not telling you that you have to look at your life and go, well, everything about this is wonderful. Go ahead and acknowledge. I'd rather this not be that way. I wish this wasn't that way. And I wish this was that way. But then reason that God is able to perform for you what He has promised and act like it. It's not enough for me for you to say you believe it. Act like it. If you don't act like it, it's because you don't believe it. If you believe it, you will act like it. 
If anybody says he loves Jesus, he must walk as Jesus walked. You know? I mean, that's gospel. That's not Eric. Well, I believe that you do take Jesus at his word. That's why you're here. I take Jesus at his word. If you see a time in a brother's life where they seem to have forgotten Jesus' word, don't throw a chair at them. Remind them of this life-giving substance that we have. Encourage them that it is real for them just like it is you. And then set an example by refusing to allow circumstances to overcome your faith. Spur one another on. Show them it can be done. Our church is going to be a church of overcomers and people that are downtrodden, that don't think they can succeed, that lack confidence, that are insecure, will be able to come in here and go, it can be done. I will do it and I will overcome because God's Word says it and I see it's worked in their lives. You are not the exception. You are not the only one that cannot succeed. You are not the only one that Jesus saved, but He does not have good things in store for. If He did it for Cassidy, if He did it for Mandy, then He will do it for you. That's the church and that's the strength in fellowship. Now, we're supposed to be teaching on the book of John tonight. So what you need to know from the book of John is that when Jesus was leaving Judea, He skipped His hometown because not much happened there. And He went to where they believed and it was Galilee in the north. Jesus was often associated with the Galilee. All of the apostles, save one, were from the Galilee. You know who the one was that wasn't from Galilee? Judas. How about that? I bet he stood out like a sore thumb. huh? Jesus spent much time in that area because the religious epicenter of Israel was in the south. And when Jesus was there, it was for controversy and for death. I mean, he knew he had an appointment with it and it was on the third Passover of his life. We have now gone through one Passover or approaching a second. We'll soon be at the third. So, the first part of John uh, covers two years, the first few chapters. The last 90% of the chapters cover the last six months of his life. So, that's, that's where we are. We are soon going to be in John 5, death crossing over into life. If you didn't remember anything else tonight, remember that you're going to take Jesus at his word. And any problem you have, you're going to put in the light of his word. Fair enough?